Welcome back. I'm Kim Bailey. She's Juliana Osborne. This is Inside Exec. And today we're joined by Jonathan Goldson. And he's going to talk to us, among other things, about grappling with the grey, which is not the grey hairs that I thought it was originally. And he's stroking his grey beard, but you can't see him doing that. But we're talking about the grey that's inside your head. First of all, let me introduce Jonathan to you. Jonathan works with leaders to build a culture of ethics that earns trust, sparks initiative, and limits liability, applying ancient wisdom to the challenges of the modern world. His column, The Ethical Lexicon, appears weekly in Fast Company magazine. Jonathan's a keynote and TEDx speaker, business advisor, community rabbi, and repentant hitchhiker, which I'm sure we will hear about. I don't think he's all that repentant. I think given the choice, he'd probably embark on that trip yet again. (laughs) He's also an award-winning podcast host and author of six books, including Grappling with the Grey, an ethical handbook for personal success and business prosperity. We're delighted to have you join us today. Welcome. Uh, Thank you very much. It's my pleasure to be here. Let us first talk about culture and leadership as the umbrella of our conversation how can organizations communicate ethics simply well there is a sociologist by the name of raymond baumhart and i used him and i use him in my keynote presentations he asked business professionals how they would define the term ethics and he got a number of different answers mm. so some said ethics have to do with what my feelings tell me are right and wrong or ethics have to do with my religious beliefs. Ethics means doing what the law requires. Ethics means adhering to the standards that society sets for acceptable behavior. And my absolute favorite answer he got was, I don't know what that word means. (laughs) And therein lies the problem. Because if we don't have a definition for ethics, how can we be ethical? So, you know, we could get into the, the etymology of the words, but simply speaking, what I like to to propose is that ethics is the discipline of recognizing and taking responsibility for the impact our our actions have on others. That's very much a personal thing. It's very much you determine for yourself. Well, yes and no. In other words, I have to be aware. I have to be empathetic. Mm. And I have an acronym for ethics and the E is empathy. I have to intuit and discern how my actions are affecting others. Because that's not up to me. If I'm conducting myself in a way which inevitably is going to have an impact on others, I have to be aware of that. And taking responsibility for it means that I'm sensitive. If I'm abrasive, if I'm confrontational, if I'm selfish, I mean, all of these are going to have an impact on those around me and consequently going to affect the culture that I live in or I work in. So taking responsibility for that, it's a personal responsibility, but it requires me to be aware of how my actions are affecting others. One of the things that intrigues me just in in watching you speak is that you speak with a smile. In terms of communicating these issues that people start to feel a little bit uncomfortable about, that they're not comfortable about acknowledging where they are in that, that journey of finding out who they are or what they're doing. Is the communication with a smile the easy answer? Is that the, the easy in to, to get them to, to be comfortable, to start thinking about those ideas without the apprehension that might surround them? It's fascinating to me that this topic comes up uh, quite a bit. I, I taught high school for 23 years, 
And I love teaching, but I don't remember anyone ever commenting on my smile. (laughs) (laughs) And when I retired from teaching and I started my speaking business, I started hearing it all the time. Right. And, you know, there's this whole cliche, do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life. Yes. Um, If we don't like our work, chances are we're not going to be smiling. Now, smiling, I've been told, is not only a response to feeling a certain joy, but it also makes us feel more joyful. There's a certain feedback, I understand. And so if we really take pleasure in what we're doing, I mean, lots of things we're not to like about COVID, although there have been some articles about how it's we're already getting to a point where people are starting to feel nostalgic about some of the unintended benefits, you know, like what we're doing right now, having a conversation between middle America and Australia is not something that was terribly common yeah, yeah. before COVID. I, the technology was there. It just hadn't really penetrated the culture. I have one of my podcasts. I have a co-host. We were working together for two years before we met in person. Yeah, right. It's a wonderful opportunity we have to engage people from different cultures and find people with whom we resonate that we might never have found otherwise. And I take tremendous joy in that. I love talking to people, exchanging ideas, creating relationships. I can look at a screen and I can, I know we're just recording the audio, but I'm looking at, at you right now. And and that creates a sense of bonding and camaraderie. And when we feel joy in what we're doing, that is going to have a profound effect mm-hmm. on our human interactions. I mean, just the difference of getting a good night's sleep. Yes. <laughs> I come in tired. I'm more likely to be grumpy. I'm going to be short-tempered. I'm going to be easily frustrated. And that's going to spill over onto the other people. <clears throat> so taking responsibility to the extent I can for my mood, we really believe that, you know, first, certainly in the Jewish tradition, we believe it, but psychologically as well, that we have more control over our moods than we sometimes would like to admit. And Absolutely. we yes. can reframe situations. We can create situations for ourselves. The people we choose to be around, I always quote the, the, the business guru, Jim Rohn, that you are the average of the five people you spend most of your time with which really is an idea that goes back thousands of years in Jewish tradition. Mm-hmm. There are lots of things we can do to increase our joy in life. And then that's going to be a virtuous circle, it's going to make our interactions more joyful, which is going to make us more joyful and bring joy to the lives of others. You have participated in many organizations coming in to talk about the ethics to the executive, to the wider group. I wanted to know what was the reaction to a rabbi coming to talk to a corporate about ethics and before you got there, and then what happened after they heard you? Or how did it all happen? <laughs> well, one reaction is I don't get hired, so I can't speak to that really. <laughs> <laughs> Very funny. Well, <laughs> I wish it were more of a joke, but you know, it's, it's just a reality that I look the part, I look like a rabbi, and I am, I am a rabbi, or so they tell me. I've had an ongoing conversation with many of my business advisors and counselors over whether I should put rabbi above the fold or below the fold. Is it something that Mm -hmm. I should put more prominently as a differentiator 
or is it should, should I let people discover it later because people may automatically assume I'm going to talk about religion. Mm-hmm. When I gave my TED talk, yeah. uh, I got up on the stage. Yeah. I, I intentionally went up with a, with a stern look on my face, looked at the audience for several seconds, and then said, I am a religious fundamentalist. And there was that's, dead that's, silence. Yes, I was going to say, and you can hear the intake of breath because I yes. watched it. Thinking, Whoa, <laughs> now what are they, what's he going to do next? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, exactly. And, and, you know, and that was what I was, that was contrived because then yeah. I stepped forward, yeah. I break into a smile and I say, uh, I know that's a dangerous way to start a talk. And everybody cracked yeah. up and it, and it broke the tension. And, and the best part of the TED Talk, and I've told this over so many times because it just, it, it, it meant so much to me. And the talk was about first impressions and about labels and about mm-hmm. learning people are. And right after I got off the stage, I was walking back into the auditorium and a woman intercepted me and she said, you know, when you got up on that stage, I knew exactly what kind of person you were. And I knew exactly what kind of talk you were going to give. Yeah. You blew away my expectations. Thank you. <laughs> and that is very much my message that yes. when we indulge in stereotypes and when we give into those labels, we create barriers that prevent us from actually getting to know people, mm-hmm. to learn about them, to learn their points of view. And I like to use that because I know people are going to make snap judgments about me. Mm-hmm. And then when I start talking about how I went hitchhiking cross country, then they really start going, what? <laughs> it gives me leverage to gently force people yeah. to reconsider yeah. their preconceptions. And not only just to reconsider, but also to listen to what you're saying rather than assume what you're going to say. Exactly. And it's very topical because we've done another podcast quite recently where the fellow was very upfront at the beginning of it. We didn't know this beforehand. And he said, look, I I have to tell you upfront, I am very faith-belief. This is part of my conversation. It's how I express myself. And so do you want me to tone that down? And I could see in the instance when he asked us, both of us sort of looked at one another and said, okay, you know, we'll, we'll do it. You know, it's the Australian thing. Well, don't tell us too much. Just talk to us and we'll see what we use. And it was a very educational activity for us both because we had to listen to what he was going to say, but we had to listen to it in terms of I'm hearing it, but how will the listeners hear it as well? Uh, because they're not going to be able to see him. So they don't have the same interaction with him as, as we did when we could see him. A- out of it came some things that people need to hear. And if they can move, as we decided, if they can move past the initial introduction, then they'll hear the things that, that are important for us to share with them. And if they don't, well, I didn't want to hear it anyway. And, yeah. and that's why your introduction with that TED Talk is very powerful and your explanation of the the way you um, define ethics, it's really good. So, again, it's the barrier, it's the assumption, and then getting past it so quickly in your case. Yeah, well, a smile goes a long way. It really does when it's genuine. And and it's, it's genuine if we orient ourselves to find the joy yeah. in our lives. I mean, I became a businessman when I was uh, 55 years old. I never thought I was going to. I never wanted to. Hmm. And it's, it was a bit of a learning curve. And if I measured my early success only in terms of how much income I was generating, yeah. well, you know, businesses don't usually just take off <laughs> in the <Yeah>. beginning. <laughs> no. But I was really doing what I loved. 
Yeah. And and then you know, just as the business is starting to build, along mm-hmm. comes COVID and shuts down the the conference industry. Yeah. My whole business model was conference keynotes. Yeah. So so then I'm back to square one. All sorts mm-hmm. of canceled engagements. I made up my mind. I was just going to produce content because that's what I love. I was going to network online because that's mm-hmm. what I found. Yeah. You know, if, if it takes me a while to figure out how to get the business end back up, mm-hmm. um, I was prepared to, and fortunately in a position where, uh, where I was able to do that. So, you know, to find joy in the midst of crisis. And it's one of the topics we want to, we want to talk about is responding yes. to crisis. We can let the crisis destroy us. Mm-hmm. Or we can rise to the challenge and we can yeah. figure out, okay, how do I work within this new situation? So just on that, we'll do the, the segue very neatly into if we talk just the difference between crisis and chaos, because often we will make change when crisis mm-hmm. is upon us. But as those, those few years of, of COVID continued, it was not so much crisis as chaos. So do we have to change our thinking continuously to deal with that well we we have to change our thinking in the sense that we have to acknowledge the reality that we live in that really tired phrase we've heard so many times now the new normal which was in many cases the new abnormal yes the reality is what it is which is another awful phrase but (laughs) (laughs) the world is not going to change just because we want it to. Culture has become so enmeshed in our feelings. It's good to be sensitive to other people, and it's good to be in touch with our feelings, but the world doesn't really care (laughs) what my feelings are. I can feel all I want, but if I'm not aligned with reality, reality is going to win. Yes. So, you know, recognizing that there is, we are in chaotic times, the truth is we've been in chaotic times a lot over, over human history. Mm-hmm. Things are, are a lot more stable now than they have been. And, and even in the pandemic, my wife's grandmother lived through the Spanish flu. Right. And she talked about it. Mm-hmm. And, and it was quite a different type of situation because they didn't have a lot of you know, accommodations that we were yeah. able yeah. Uh, to come up with. It's even just the but, communication. You know, we, we have the opportunity. We were in a, an age where we could communicate where, where governments actually put aside their differences and, and talk to one another and and worked with one another to provide a, a, range, a level, a base level of care and protection that wouldn't have been possible even 50 years ago, I don't think. Yeah. I think so much of it really comes down to, to core values, which we talk about a lot. Yes. Yeah. But I'm not sure we necessarily talk about it in the most productive way. Well, I have to tell you that our most, since 2015, our most popular podcast is about determining core values. And we, we've done it once or twice, I think. Yeah. And they're, they're both really popular still. But it's very difficult for us to find people who can talk about core values in a way that is acceptable to a, the broad range of the audience. So you're on the spot now. Well, the first thing I would say is, first thing I would say is, don't wait for the crisis or the chaos to start thinking about what your core values are. Um, Mm -hmm. Then you're already um, behind the eight ball. Is that that an expression down under? It is. Yeah. (laughs) So how do we how do we come to core values? I I was part of an organization, and we we decided we wanted to articulate our core values, Mm -hmm. and we spent 
three or four brainstorming sessions mm-hmm. with a week or two in between each one, crafting our core values. And we started with just making a list of values. What yeah. are the things that are important to us? And we ended up with a list that was probably 30 or 40 items long. And then we started grouping them. Which of these fit together? Kindness and generosity and that type of thing. And once we got them into groups, then we started trying to prioritize and kind of more, not so much prioritize, but have a hierarchy. Mm-hmm. Which of these are subsumed under others? And we came up with a list of integrity, excellence, service, justice, and harmony. Mm-hmm. But then we had a, a one sentence expansion of each that described how spokes of a wheel, how uh, secondary values fit yeah. under that and use those to, to help define the terms. And, and we were very comfortable with the list that we came up with mm-hmm. uh, in, in Jewish tradition. Classic work of values is called Ethics of Fathers. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the first chapter, it gives a formula for all human society that what the world endures on three things, truth, justice, and peace. Although the word shalom in Hebrew is, I think, better translated as harmony. Mm-hmm. And you can have justice, but justice can be distorted. You know, mm-hmm. There's a lot of debate in the world today and conflict in the, about what is justice. Yeah. The whole concept of, of equity is, is actually very polarizing because people have different views of what is just. Yeah. Truth. Truth is ultimately something that is far more complex than any of us can get a grasp on at any particular time. And, mm-hmm. and again, in Jewish tradition, you have these two great academies, the Academy of Hill and the Academy of Shammai. And, and uh, history says that when they debated in the study hall, it was as if they fought with swords and spears. Yeah. <laughs> That's how passionate they were. But it never got personal mm. because they understood that each side understood that the other was looking for truth. They recognized the intellectual integrity. They recognized the sincerity. It was never about personality or ideology. It was about having different angles. And of course, they go to the, go to the title of my book, Grappling the Gray. What? Why are things gray? Because we may agree on the same principles but we may have different priorities. Yeah. I might see justice as primary. You might see truth as primary. And that's why we need peace. That's why we need harmony, right? Mm-hmm. To harmonize those disparate parts. But even then, sometimes if you go too far for peace, we all learned what happened in 1938 at the Munich uh, uh, mm-hmm. Agreement, peace in our time, uh, mm-hmm. which of course opened the door for the greatest atrocity of, uh, of modern modern times. Uh, misguided application of peace is going to cause anything but peace. So to be able to frame core values requires us, ideally with others, others who are like-minded, but not completely like-minded, because then it just becomes an echo chamber. To sit down and talk to people who see things differently and try to find what are our common values? Yes. What can we agree on? And make those the priorities, then we can then we can quibble over what we don't agree on. That important part of having the spokes, but having the secondary uh, explanation of, of what that means within this framework is perhaps where organisations miss out, mm. is that they determine those, what they see as their core values as the words, the single word, words, and then they develop a mission statement, which is not quite explaining how they're going to use 
those core values and that just sits on the wall and they do nothing with it they don't Mm -hmm. revisit it they don't look at what does that mean to us today in today's environment in that sense we're looking at organizations listening to us they have a set of core values how often should they be rethinking them yeah and then you actually touched on several points there kim that you know if we condense it into two terse a message then we we don't necessarily have a full understanding of what it means. If we go on at great length, here's a 35-page white paper on our core values, that may not be useful either. Or it may be useful, but not practical in in an ongoing sense. It's very good when it's bound because you can stand on it to reach the top shelf. (laughs) (laughs) But your question is very much on point that once we have these values, once we have this mission statement, what do we do with it? And that is something that I don't think there's a simple answer to that. I think it does have to be on the wall somewhere, but it also has to be on the wall where people are going to see it. It has to be reviewed from time to time. So at meetings, it's it's a good opportunity, maybe not to go through all of them, but maybe to pick on one, have a five-minute exercise. If you're looking at the communication then through the organization, not everyone in the organization would have being party to the crafting of it. So, yeah, we just talked about how what's behind it, what's below it. So now communicating it and making sure the whole team understand it, what's been your experience in making that successful? It really comes down, I'm not answering your question directly, it's not yet, but it really has to be perceived that the leaders are living those values. Otherwise, it becomes counterproductive. Right. So what you're saying is is the action, how we behave, is then say we're serious about those values and we live by them. Yeah, there's a a really interesting um, incident in in American history. I guess it was around 1980. We had a president by the name of Jimmy Carter Mm -hmm. who uh, has not gone down in history as one of our great presidents. But it was was a very difficult time. American hostages in Iran, uh, runaway inflation energy crisis, Soviets had gone into Afghanistan. I mean, it was really a a very, very tense and uncomfortable time. President Carter gave a speech that is now famous, talking about the national malaise, although he didn't actually use that phrase, but that's what they called it. They called it the malaise speech. And people learn that that is what destroyed his presidency. That's what finished him off. But it's not exactly true. After he gave the speech, which basically said, you know, we have sunken into this kind of tepid state of mind where we don't really believe in ourselves anymore and we're not really motivated and we need to pull ourselves together. And it was like a pep talk. The initial response to it was actually very popular, very positive. He had a a bump in popularity after giving the speech. Mm -hmm. But within weeks, there were a series of crises that seemed completely at odds with the content of the speech. So people remembered the speech enough mm. to contrast it to what they saw as incompetence in the administration. Yeah. And that's when the popularity plummeted. When there's a disconnect between the message and the people communicating the message, that's when people are going to lose faith, lose confidence, lose loyalty, and you're going to start having very serious problems. Time to take a break in our discussion with Jonathan Goldson. Join us for part two when we will continue to explore the controversy around ethics 
and the core values and the communication of those things. But for now, I'm Kim Bailey. She's Fuliana Osborne and this is Inside Exec.